0: Hello again. You know what that means, another episode of Stages. Today my guest from the West is Artistic Director of the Perth Festival, Ian Grandage. Ian Grandage is a composer, conductor and festival director. He has previously been at the helm of the Port Ferry Music Festival and in 2020 will launch his first program as Artistic Director at the Perth Festival. Born and bred in Perth, his excitement at steering the festival is palpable and contagious. He knows his audience and the responsibility of celebrating local and Indigenous art forms, whilst also delivering unique and stimulating experiences drawn from an international canvas. Ian was musical director and arranger for the national tours of Jimmy Cheese multi-award winning Corrugation Road and his involvement with Indigenous musicians has continued through his collaborations with the Spinifex people of Central Australia, initially on the theatre work career highlights of the Mamu, and subsequently with concert works in collaboration with Wasso and Topology. Ian's concert works have been performed by the ACO, Brodsky String Quartet, Australian String Quartet, Australian Brass Quintet, and choirs and orchestras around Australia – His scores have covered a broad range of genres and cover diverse subjects. Opera with The Rabbits and The Riders, theatre with Cloud Street and The Secret River, dance with When Time Stops and film with Saturn Jawa. Ian greeted me armed with a block of chocolate and a peppermint tea, eager to generously share his vision for the 2020 festival and an insight into his incredible instinct and ethos as an artist. What did you enjoy about running uh, the Port Fairy Music Festival? Because you, you're artistic director there for how long? Just three years. Right. I thought I should not do. I should not answer any questions while I've got my mouthful of chocolate. You can eat chocolate if you want. I mean, that's the beauty of podcast. It's authentic. <laughs> we're in your office. You're eating chocolate, and you've got a green tea, peppermint tea. Peppermint tea.
1: Yeah, that's oh, how it runs.
0: Were you a fan of um, uh, peppermint crisp? The chocolate bar?
1: No, not at all. All oh,
0: right, you never heard of them,
1: properly. It the it's the only context that I have peppermint. Yeah. I don't like mint. I don't like after dinner mints, even though I'm a child of the '70s. All right,
0: but mm. you basically just had a mouthful of chocolate and peppermint tea.
1: Exactly right. But it's just there's it's things like I'll uh, like I'll have peanut butter on celery. That's uh, right. I've heard of that. On avocado
0: on Vegemite. <laughs> never. Never.
1: No. Um, most things are involving peanut butter, like satay sauce and peanut butter and carrot. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so yes, yeah, so I forget that some
0: combos. I just have a lot of chocolate every
1: day. That's all—a family block of chocolate a day. Oh really? Mm. All at
0: once or in pieces? This is fascinating every day. stuff into <laughs> the <Every> day. diet <laughs> yeah, of an artistic director. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so, so, so Port, uh, Port Fairy Music Festival. Were you living in Port Fairy or travelling down from Melbourne?
1: From Melbourne. Right. So, look, I uh, I always wanted to uh, um, to think on a larger stage than writing music allowed me to. I've got a distinct mistrust of the expression of ego that being a composer. Demanding a certain amount of people's time equates to. Yep. I think being part of a collaborative medium like theatre doesn't. I don't have that nearly as much yep. because you're creating something together, and actually, in the in the rub of of coming up against stuff in the room, you're really sure that what you're producing is what you want to say. Yep. When you're writing a piece of music for a classical ensemble or for anyone. You're demanding the unadulterated attention of those, undivided attention of those audience members for that period of time. You better make sure you've got something good to say. Um, Increasingly I became, and I have become more sort of uneasy with that expression of ego that's required in order to go, you have to listen to my piece now. So that's increasingly led to me being silenced and also working a lot harder at those pieces that I'm writing. But when, you're, when, you're, when you get to sew together bigger stories with other people's music, like you do in Port Fairy Chamber Music Festival, or Spring Music Festival, or in all sorts of art forms in this context of the Perth Festival. I don't find that because none of those stories are about me you're sewing together something which is telling a story that hopefully makes a difference to the lives of the people who are observing that as a as a work of art in port fairy's case that lasts for three days and they get to find their own way through it so they have agency about where they are and when they are Mm. you're still exploring many of the similar ideas that i would have been exploring inside writing music Mm. but it's on a much larger scale and it's with a far broader canvas of artistry and it's with a far um, uh, uh, it has the ability to move people more because there's a diversity of opinion and of expression and of
0: of forces involved as well and here you are now at the Perth Festival the 8th Artistic Director is that right? yeah <laughs> um, what a what a drive to work! I mean, I just drove along Riverside Drive. It's yeah. spectacular. I come the other way. I'm from Frio. All right. So okay. I, I um,
1: look when we moved back before I, before I got this job, I, we want to bring the kids up here. You're a Perth boy, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up here. I know what it feels like to, to feel that ocean breeze, and I was missing that deeply in Melbourne. Part of the reason for taking that Port Fairy job as well, that has that same sense of that same aspect yeah. and that same sense of freshness of water coming off the ocean, of air coming off the ocean. There's no Fremantle Doctor in Port Fairy, though. No, but there is a belter of a west wind. Like it's really, you can get quite, um, like that, that drive, that three hour drive from Melbourne to Port Fairy. The quality of the skies because of the changing the nature of the clouds that came across there. Like those, sun- there's nothing like those sunsets I've ever experienced.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and the festival digs here. I mean, this, this, these offices are amazing. Yeah, this is
1: the this is the second building of UWA. The first one's just up the hill a tiny bit. Right. Um, for those of you who know the UWA campus, it's all across the road on Riverside Drive, and there's a big slab of Crawley over there, and yeah. we're we're in a little bit attached to Kings Park. Yeah, this is the, the the original Chancellor's home.
0: Yeah. Built in 1932, I think. So. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Um, and and this office, I, I'd visited the last... Well, every single festival director I'd visited in this office in their job as a festival director. And I'd come in here. So I've, I've been in love with this room for a, a long time. But um, it's a... Did it, you ever think that you might sit behind that desk? Look, I dreamed of that in the 90s. Right. Um, I let it go, and then I was very conscious in in taking on a job like Port Fairy that that might put me in a better place, perhaps to one day take over this job. Wear your out plates for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you know, like when I looked at it, when I was about to apply for the job, when Wendy Martin, my predecessor, got the job, I was going to apply then, and I just yeah. uh, I sanded out a couple of of people, and some said go for it, and others said what have you done? In the realm of programming, right, and that was a big fat zero. I said I've worked collaborated a lot across a lot of
0: disciplines. Yeah,
1: I'd collaborated with a lot of people. I loved collaborating. It's yeah. the it's the heart of it. Like I, I I love having an opinion about the quality of a lighting state and the the dramaturgy of a scene and the and the quality of a um, of what what color a, a particular piece of set looks like and in in all of those theatrical media, um, but. Uh, but in terms of actually programming, in terms of going and staring at something and going, that suits the audience here, none. So it was a very, it was a lovely, uh, it was a lovely L plate, as you describe it, training ground. But also knowing where the pressures are, knowing the brochure deadline's a massive thing, knowing that delivering the website stuff is massive. Um,
0: uh, so it was good to experience that from the inside did Did you attend it a lot when you were growing up? Or was it festival an, yeah, yeah. an annual thing for you yeah.
1: um I mean specifically in that time where once I was at uni less as a less memorably as a as a teenager um even though it must have been going then like yep. through the eighties um very memorably a series of experiences seeing Salif kaita in the undercroft of winthrop hall in would have been 1993 i think he'd just played out at um belvoir quarry um out of town and came back in and started playing about 11:30 at night to 200 people in the under 300 400 people in the undercroft of of winthrop hall when he played for three four hours in the days when they, you could sort of could get around some of those curfew sort yeah. of restrictions and you yeah. know and the bar stayed open and we danced and danced and danced and it went for me that was the the carnival was here like it was it was the moment where you went this is there's a whole there's a whole life here that I've never known about being a classical musician sitting in a sitting in an orchestra playing cello
0: you've said that there's a particular way of viewing the world that comes from growing up here mm-hmm. i.e. Perth and we see that in the novels of Tim Winton and Elizabeth Jolly and the art of Robert JUNIPER. But what did you mean by that? Um, that, for me, is about um, the size of the sky, the
1: the intensity of the light, the the smell of that, the clearness of the air, the smell of that breeze, the mo- the the way the environment gives you room to breathe, both um, physically but also creatively. And I think it's not the act of collaboration is not huge here. The the isolation breeds a certain type of artist be it Winton or like they're, they're iconoclasts Winton and, and Jolly Jolly especially yep. but then all of these musicians be it um, uh, John Butler or Minchin or people who get to experiment or Tabin Parler and Kevin Parker in more contemporary terms um, where how you get to try your wares Without being inspected, too much because of the isolation, and I'm sure you you arrive on a bro- on a broader public stage
0: better prepared for that moment because well, th- of the isolation. I think that goes into things like whopper, you know, training institutions. You yeah. can actually go and focus on on your craft for three years and risk take more. Yeah. I'm sure people are far. Bigger risk
1: takers in a whopper environment than they are in... Nata, all this, yeah. Where every, every show there's a whole pile of heavies who come in and stare at them and they go, oh, don't... Like, you would intri- be intrinsically more cautious or it's more of an audition rather than just, like, seeing what it feels like to be out on a limb.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What was your music education like at school? At school? Not much. Once a week or...?
1: Not at all. Not really, at all. I didn't. I did. I did maths, physics, chemistry, English literature, and French. So all of my music education was, was Richard Karriella. Gill, yeah. uh, and the West Australian Youth Orchestra. Richard Gill doing a thing called Junior Exhibitionist course on a Friday afternoon, where I met all my best friends in the world, um, with a, the exception of a handful of people from from school, who I still keep in touch with. But all of those musicians who are my age and are now right the way around the world, like the deepest and most beautiful connections with them because of Richard and because of how he allowed each of us to feel like anything was possible. And that was only three hours on a Friday afternoon each each week.
0: But He, he had a unique superpower, didn't he? Oh. Uh, just instilling in anybody a great... Passion, but also understanding and appreciation of music. I mean, and that ridiculous gift he had, that then,
1: which was a the embodiment of empowerment. Actually, where he could he would meet you once, he would meet you twice. On the second time meeting you, he would remember your name, and then it was in. And just that thing, what that does for your focus when you're in a large choir, and he points at you and he names you and he says you need to do that. Like that sense of of um, of being answerable to someone. Mm that is an amazing thing. But also then him having no truck with lagging behind, like that kind of exhortation to excel, demanding the best of you. And you knew that that was a safe place because he demanded, um, because you knew his love for you was, was complete. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a power trip he was on. He was on, a, he was on a, you do this and instilling that. He was stoking the fire of belief in a lot of people. That's the I reckon that's the rare gift he had. Mm. What was your instrument? So I I started on piano as an eight year old and stopped playing pia- and started the cello when I was ten. So in year five, um, and by the age of fourteen, I stopped learning the piano, and went to uh, the state library every week because I wanted to be a piano bar pianist. Um, and would just learn popular songs from books, lots of songs from the 20s and 30s and 40s just sit there and read books because I wanted to learn, in inverted commas, jazz it's not jazz at all, it's just the popular music of the swing era Um, and uh, because cello really took over and I didn't really have time to do both given the rigours of being in a private school Um, and, uh, and and I just loved the West Australian Youth Orchestra which was my weekends and uh, so cello very much took over, and then piano became the thing I noodled on all the time. And so um, I'm neither now. I can play. I can play decent cello when it's my music, but I wouldn't deign to play anything by um, by grown-up composers. Uh, I can I can have a go at it, you know. But uh, there's people who spend their lives perfecting and honouring that legacy of, of dead people. <laughs> and I just and I just don't think I, I don't think my technique quite quite honors that enough. Yeah.
0: So you you only played those two instruments? You didn't pick up anything else. Um
1: so I play. Um, I'm eating chocolate again now. Mm. That's all right. I uh, I play piano accordion, I play electric bass guitar, I play melodicas, all those sort of keyboard based instruments. I play ukulele. I play. Tin whistle and um, junk
0: instruments, really. I think um, piano, accordion. You had to teach yourself when you were in a production of Cosy. It's true, Black Swan. Um, so Understanding I, the, the piano, I suppose that keyboard helps a bit. And
1: also the way I played piano, like having done that as a from for. You know, I ended up playing in piano bars at the age of eighteen and nineteen, and realising it was the most soul destroying,
0: lonely thing in the entire universe for someone as social as me. And people ignoring you, also I imagine. I mean, exactly. you're just background sound. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah.
1: You know, it was a very beautiful restaurant I played in, but you know, it was it was debilitating as opposed to the joy of making music with others. So yeah, I auditioned for Cosi um, because I wanted to write film music. Uh, and I'd been an actor. I'm a terrible actor. Ham I and cheese, like really terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. Cheese
0: as well. Yeah. Wow.
1: Like I'm um, just. Um, but Andrew Ross, who who invest, who has one of the rare directors in Australia who invests in untried talent, and has always done it, and has, got, has seen has seen potential in people. And he's regularly done it, and so few, so few directors do it. They need to have seen something which lets them know that that person can do
0: what they require them to do. And they lose confidence, I guess. I said, "Oh, I'll use person A again because I have that shorthand with them, and they can't be bothered establishing a new relationship." Mm. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Establishing relationships is Andrew's greatest
1: gift. Like in, he's he's always on that outreach. Um, and so it's a, that's what made him so powerful in creating indigenous the the beginning of that indigenous theatre um, explosion in the early 90s and what allowed him to work so graciously alongside uh, Jack uh, um, Jack Davis um, and 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 the beginning of that and where it's now inappropriate for him to direct indigenous stories at that time it was it was a revelation for people. Anyway, I, I got to meet Kelton Pell on that particular show of Cossie, and he, Kelton's been one of, um, along with the late, great Ningley Lawford, um, was one of uh, a number of those first Indigenous actors who I worked alongside, who, who showed me the way in to belonging in Indigenous terms.
0: Cossie was the first time that you sort of took composition seriously?
1: No, I'd been composing a lot through right. university. Um, but the com- my composition teacher was very serious, um, which I found... I'm still having lessons from him, even though he passed away 15 years ago. He's one of those people who had such wisdom that it takes you quite a long time to understand what he was on about. At the time, as an unformed early 20-something... <laughs> he was... Like he was a long, a long, he was out of my league. <clears throat> um, so I'd been tinkering, but this was a moment where I got to, where I said to Andrew, yes, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm will i delighted that you would like me to appear in this play, but I'm really interested in writing music. So I wrote music for every Black Swan show from that in playing Cosy for the next five
0: years, really. So what does music allow that we cannot access in other forms of expression? I have these conversations. Like you should you should do a podcast with
1: David Woods, from Ridiculousness. Oh yeah, he's an actor yeah, who does a yeah. lot like with Back to Back as well. Yes. One of the great minds of this country. Um, I mean, he's an Englishman, and we can forgive him, but um, he's uh, like quite late in my theatre music writing career. Like we'd be in very sharp discussion about what underscore does. To an actor and how it's, it creates laziness amongst actors because lots of that lifting, lots of the space between the words and the space where meaning resides is being filled by music which is doing lots of that lifting for you.
0: What do you think of silent films?
1: Mm. You know, it's telling you what to feel and how to think. Yeah. Yeah. And and in underscoring a monologue live and you sit there he he would get frustrated at at the fact that there was it was almost impossible to work anything other than what the music was saying. So it's a subtextual um, joy uh, I think. Um, Mm. And I love but it's a, it's a it's an interesting um, it's a rare
0: skill, I've got to say. I don't think many people do it well. You've had a significant presence on Australian stages for a couple of decades in a variety of genres and disciplines: theatre, cabaret, opera, dance. Do you have a favourite genre to write for?
1: Look, I've always found if you go round the um, being a polymath. I love, I love the fact that playing my instrument changes how I write music, how, if I'm writing an opera, that changes the way I write music for dance, if I'm collaborating with a pop musician, that changes the way that I write a piece of classical music. Um, so, favourite, like, I would have to say, I think... The one you're working on? Yeah, well, I'm I'm not doing much now, I've got this job, um, but, uh... I think dance, I would love to write big, like some big dance pieces because you get to drive a narrative and there's a lot of space. There's a lot of abstraction in terms
0: of what that means. Right. Let's look at a, a few of the works that you've done. I mean, on dance, When Time Stops from Expression Dance Company in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. How do you create a score for a dance project? I mean, is the choreography done first? No, the choreography can't be done first until the score is there or you're doing it at the same time. So...
1: uh. In that instance, with Natalie is an immensely generous collaborator. I was also doing it with a dear, dear old friend from Australian Youth Orchestra Days who runs an orchestra called The Camerata in Queensland, Brendan Joyce. And he's a a great and generous musician, and they were in the room. So I would sit there with the piano, and they would do some dance, and then I would go something like that, which would create a mood. And then they'd go, yes, something a bit more like that. Or they would... I would send some temps in if i if i wasn't in the room for a while so it was a very um i show a little you show a little bounce off and then you and it kind of an iterative process of back and forth Mm. in in the case of when time Mm. stops but always knowing that there were some strings that were going to come along and they memorized an hour-long score wow they did and placed themselves in danger's way by playing violins amidst this this these dancers like it was a
0: very special show when time stops well in that regard too everyone's got ownership of it I guess so they're really invested in it. yeah beautiful comment like like,
1: I mean that's all I'm rarely doing things it sounds odd I'm rarely doing things for audiences I'm doing it for my fellow collaborators and if we've done it right then the audience looks after itself like if our care for each other is clear um, and we've been rigorous with each other rigorous and careful with each other then I think the the result looks after itself, I think the danger is when you're doing it for that and that can happen in the quality of performance, you know the
0: the mugging and the ham and the, yeah. all that sort of stuff and the cheese yes <laughs> um, well, let's look at Cloud Street and Secret yeah. River how do you find the correct tone that's going to complement the text in telling these epic and, and often haunting stories question again so both of those are are literary
1: adaptions for the stage and very similar because they were both guided with the sure hand of Neil Neil's um Neil's methodology is very rigorous from the point of view that you sit around a table for weeks in the case of Cloud Street and a week in the case of Sika River um, and you talk you read through the play and you talk through any moments that don't quite make sense he asks questions what neil is doing at that stage is blocking the whole play um and in his head uh but he's making sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of comprehending the transactions that are happening between in in any particular scene he's also sculpting the text during those moments so the playwright's always the, the adapter is always in the room in those instances and so he's making sure that there's pace when there needs to be pace and then there's those beautiful cadences and wind down at the end of various scenes and then when it's on the floor he invites I wasn't capable of it or courageous enough to do it much in the first season of Cloud Street but from the rehearsing for the second season of Cloud Street a year later I was suddenly playing every moment and so for for those actors I'm playing live in the room Yep. playing live in the room for every single scene of Zika River just playing there just playing along just seeing what feels right and how and just and writing the score on the fly um, so it's the fact that the omnipresence of music in both those productions is because it just emerged at the same time that the actor's performance has emerged. The score becomes like
0: another character, I suppose. Almost. See,
1: Yeah, I mean, Neil's, Neil's the quintessential rhythmic director. He, he's directing the rhythm of every single line. He's touching the cadence of every single line of every actor, and many actors aren't capable of doing that, which is why he has his that that group of people with whom he works um and so it makes it very easy to play for because you know exactly what's going on all i do is listen to his instructions to the actors and the common and the pushback from the actors and you know exactly what you've got to do it's not it's that's not rocket surgery in there like that's it's really um yeah it says like rehearsals are an exciting time for you oh, i love it yeah yeah i love it i don't have time to do it anymore, but it's, no. um, Oh, it's interesting, like with a a small family, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like I can't be away from Perth, so it's, um, but
0: that act of creation when you know that the story is worth telling. What about writing for an orchestra, you know, um, operas like The Rabbits and The Riders? Mm -hmm. You must have a knowledge of a broad range of instruments and, and how they sound with each other and what they're going to say.
1: Yeah, I mean the two very different experiences. The ride, uh, the rabbits was uh, very close to a theatre show, like in how we wrote it, and and Kate and Keir would come up with their um, with their uh, um, uh, songs and lyrics in inside that context, and then we would see how that would get theatricalized, and so and that would get very molded and heavily molded by John, Chidi, and and me as the MD in there. Um, the writers was I wrote in isolation and in orchestrating look I've sat inside orchestras for decades so I love it the, the moment when I knew I wanted to write for orchestra was listening to Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe and the sunrise that happens in that orchestral suite and just going what was that and like nerd nerd off went down to the straight down to the music library got the score out and just <laughs> stared at it and if you look at there's a good six or seven pieces of mine that have exactly the orchestration of that moment in my piece. Like I've just gone, quite literally, it's just like I've looked at, oh, how's he done that? And I look at it and you'll just see it in, in you'll see Ravel in nearly all of my orchestrations. I've never learned orchestration. Yeah. All I've done is stared, listened to it, go, I've heard a moment in an orchestra piece and I've gone to the library and stared at what made it sound like that. And then if you've got a hundred of those bits in your head, then you've got something that becomes your sound as opposed to you just, just stealing from poor old Maurice.
0: Um, <laughs> artists often talk about their muse, you know, their artistic yeah. inspiration is is Ravel yours? Uh, I guess every no, project has a different muse.
1: Yeah, like it's no he's not a muse, like he's a he's the finest craftsman I've ever seen. He's the person who makes the orchestra sing more than any person perhaps he and Oliver the an English composer who recently passed away, um, uh, were two, the two people I thought were most in control of that as a beast that made it sound like a single thing, rather than, rather than a number of instruments in conversation. Just the way they made it sound like a single coherent, mm. the quality of melding of sounds and instruments like that's amazing. If I had a muse, I think it's uh, the muse is philosophical, and the muse is uh, is about belonging, really. Like wherever I, whatever I'm writing for, I want to feel like um, I I belong or
0: I have the right to say something. Are you superstitious? Do you have an opening night ritual? If a favourite rabbit's foot or (laughs) it's not anything that you must do to sort of centre
1: yourself? No, like I mean that that's changed over the like, no, generally not. No, just a block of chocolate in the bag. Yeah, like yeah. it's always chocolate's a thing. <laughs> sugar. My partner, she says it's uh, um, sugar is toxic. Like I have a, it's such a, like I, and I should, I'll, I'll, hit, I'll hit a wall with eating too much chocolate. It's going to be a terrible thing. Until that, I'm going to have lots.
0: Uh, do you read reviews? Mm. You do?
1: Yeah. Why? No, I shouldn't. Yeah. I, I read reviews because in touch wood, generally they're good. You know, like that sounds like a dickish thing to say, actually, but I mean... But I guess we I, all want to know how our work is perceived. But generally, Received. I think... Generally, I think even a... The, the only reviews that annoy me are those which are lazy... Oh, I I, couldn't, I love a bad review as much as a good review, actually, if their reasoning is correct. Yeah, yeah. Just fundamentally, if they go, if they've seen something and they drive you at it and they go, and it can be really confronting, but in the end you're going to write something better next time because they've nailed exactly what the problem is. I love that inspection that comes from it. I'm... but my partner's very good at going if you take that good if you take a good feeling from that good review then that's that's as cheap it's a it's that's a cheap hit like it's a it's it's a cheap thrill actually because you also need to take the ones from the bad reviews so don't get all don't get all cocky on the back of that you know fundamentally if you've done something good or not if you've made something of which you're proud i think perhaps um and so uh it does make you i alluded before to being slowly silenced uh because you get more you get more cautious about what project you say yes to or what piece you commit to writing or this this job is easy because i'm writing on the coattails of a whole pile of artists yeah. um, decades of work you know like it's not this is not a the act of programming is not hard the act of commissioning the, the courage involved in commissioning new work is is more confronting um, and not being able to the, the hardest part of this job is not being able to uh, say yes to all of the people who you think deserve it and then the quality of saying no to not deny those people's uh, truth in the art that they're creating and to silence them because you've denied them the opportunity and I I struggle deeply with that. That idea that you said no, um, I love your work but but it's not in the program Mm -hmm. in that it can really scythe through some people and if they then I don't want to be the one who's responsible for them feeling like they're incapable or unworthy of creating art going forward. Yeah. That's,
0: that's, I find that responsibility quite tricky. So how are you presented with the repertoire that you're going to consider for programming? Are people making submissions all the time, and stuff comes across your desk, you hear about things, you go out and see them, all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're always. I'm a, I'm a, you're always sniffing lots of stuff comes across your desk but there's a lot of noisy gong i call them noisy gongs there's a lot of people who are consistently knocking at your door um in each one of those cases you need to make a judgment as to whether they're and some of those people are very senior artists nationally and internationally you consistently need to make the judgment as to whether they've got a big name because they're insistent or so to remove their, the quality of their name from the quality of what they're creating. <laughs> and that's what, uh, maybe that's where, that's, maybe that's the, the bit that's taste or something like that. But there's no shortage of, there's no shortage of op- put it this way, there's no shortage of options. It's, it's hard to make sure that the right thing speaks to the right thing. I'm very interested in creating a coherent program that makes an argument and a statement about who we are and why we're here that's more important than the quality of each individual part of that like a much i think the component parts together make something that's greater than the whole you can create a beautifully shopped festival program of 10 events but if they if each of them has no relationship to the other then that's not a festival it's just it's just 10 events and a festival is something different
0: well, the Perth Festival comes with some quite prestige. I mean, it's claimed to be the uh, oldest festival in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere. Truth, that's a quite a vintage <laughs> class act that you're driving. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it grew out of being a
1: summer school here. Yeah. Um, so and it so it predates. There was an explosion of arts festivals in the eighties, nineties. Like, and there's a, that through through that particular period of. Um, uh, of financial uh, growth in Australia um, and perhaps the 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 social um, uh, mindfulness of what was possible and could be created through festivals exploded then but this is a good 30 years older than that um, because 1953
0: mm. yeah.
1: and so from that point of view yes it's got that um uh, it's got that provenance that came from, you know, like the that relationship between cricket and footy being the the off sea the the off season thing. It was the thing to keep people engaged um, across the summer holidays, and it grew out of a uh, uh, summer school like a like those great summer festivals that happen in Europe, yeah. uh, where it's the thing to fill in that time so that you don't go to you know, your. Um, your
0: minds don't go to sleep yes. in the hot well Pert's very fortunate because they've now got that huge fringe festival Yeah, as well yeah. alongside it, right? and it and it's
1: like I, I it makes programming this festival trickier yeah. because there's a whole there's a whole range of things that do get presented there that, um, that are therefore not off limits but just unnecessary for us to program well, you, both,
0: you both have to be a point of
1: difference I guess yeah yeah um, but I would also there's been a lot made about the about the competitive nature between fringe and international festivals uh, and I think as in a, I think those are old arguments I think the generational shift has actually meant that festivals the, the competition for festivals is actually Netflix and stay at home and iPhones and a, a disengagement from social interaction in a in a group environment it's that's more the i reckon that's more the issue um but it's certainly part of my consciousness here as we're as we're programming going what's complementary um and it's very much part of their theirs too you know and i, I think i'm overjoyed that we have a, a, a city that can support both
0: like any arts body i assume it is depend the festival has depended a lot on sponsorship Mm-hmm. And funding is that an ongoing concern for the, for the festival? So, as in, do we have enough cash? Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh look, the first program I delivered, the first version of the program I delivered, yeah. was twice what we could afford. But I figure that's always it's always going to be that way. Yeah, and you might then, as well shoot high. You know, and I um, and I don't think what what we've ended up with is any actually even though it's much smaller it's any worse than what I first did in fact it's far more considered and you need to make very uh, in the introspection that happens at the point that you're cutting something you really end up with the things you believe in and so look having sat on the Australia Council way back in the 90s there's um, in that half of the stuff that came to to in that in the music board there was unfundable in my opinion, thirty um, percent of it was was uh, actually fundable. Twenty percent would be lovely. It could be thirty percent of it should have been funded, and and the the heartache was the fact that ten percent of it got funded. So it's in that that gap between the twenty and the, the twenty and thirty, that twenty percent of things that absolutely deserve to be funded. Yep and didn't get, and so we're in, the, we're in the same business here. Like there's, I would love that a festival with that 30% in there and we've got the 10%. So I think it, it does mean that there's a very high level of quality control or a reason behind every choice. There's no, there's no, there's no fat in there. Um, we're working hard to spread out the burden to bring ticket prices down so that you get to enjoy it but to increase philanthropic support um, and uh,
0: and so far we're going well with that Well to the listener we're having this conversation early uh, mid-October uh, at the end of October you yeah, launch your we first festival where yeah. we find out uh, what we're going to be treated to in February next year 2020 are you able to give us any titillations now?
1: Yes, when, are, when you, we, we going to? When are we going anything? to? When are we going to air?
0: I think. Well, wh- wh- when would you like it? We'll, we should do it sort of just before the festival starts next year. Oh, no! I'll just give you. What well, before. you want to more Yeah. What? Whatever. What's what's <laughs> what secret? What can't <laughs> what can't we know? What can no, you can no, I, can t- t- I can tell you everything. That's fine. Oh, great. Yeah. All right. Um, what are your highlights? What are your favourites? What are you looking forward to?
1: So, I mean, the whole festival, the 2020 festival is about um, is about this place. It's about, uh, the festival theme is Kala, which is a, a Noongar word meaning fire. But it's also the Noongar doorbell. It's the, it's, the, it's the means by which you ask to enter somebody's country. You light a fire and the person whose country it is comes to you and you're invited to enter. It's also smoking, it's a cleansing, it's a place where... but It's a shared campfire where you share stories. It's the hearth in the family home. So inside, inside that context and in, th- in a festival that's all about place, um, we're honouring the Indigenous relationship with country and place from across the country very sharply by having eight days of only Indigenous programming at the front of the festival. Uh, and so that includes... Bangara doing Benalong, which is well known and loved. It's called Jimmy Chai's Great West Australian Musical, Brand New Day. It has a new version of uh, a, n- there before, a new commission, there before uh, heard of, um, of the Scottish play done all in Noongar language called Hecate, or as it's pronounced in Noongar, Hecate, named after the witch at yes. the, the, the centre of that shakespeare play we have a, a collaboration between five in indi- uh, five uh, indigenous performers and five maori performers in two families get married with a wedding band and uh, and so it's called black ties it's a um a great uh, a great comedy we have um we have spinifex gum we have a, a brand new commission based on dr g Unapingu's last album uh Um, called Bungle, where there's a Yonngu, a celebration of Yonngu culture with a vision and a stomp and dance ground. To match all of that, there's Michael Kickendoll and the great Irish choreographer's new work called Marm, which speaks to the ancient stories that live in the west of Ireland. Um, uh, We have something that joins both that Irish and Noongar together in Tim Winton's Cloud Street in in the new Malthouse version of that. We've got a brand new commission from Circa, um, which feeds into a, a large part of what we're doing, which is getting international, compo- uh, international artists to work alongside local artists. So Circa is the finest circus company in the country. All 18 of those members with six local circus performers, six dancers, six kids, um, so 36 people on stage, about the strength of the many. We've got strut dance doing uh, one local performers doing Hoffa Schechter's latest of uh, his his great work Uprising. We've got Stephanie Lake on um, fifty Whopper dancers doing Colossus. Um, we've got uh, a choir, a famous choir from England called the Jesueldo Six, joining with two other choirs um, here to do uh, Thomas talbot's Spem in in the round, um, alongside a new piece by William Barton. Um, uh, and then we finished the entire festival with a great big story of home called Highway to Hell. So in 1980, on the 1st of March, 1980, Bon Scott was buried in Fremantle Cemetery. Before that, he'd written a song, Highway to Hell, about Canning Highway, a highway south of, south of the river here. So we're gonna close the Canning Highway from the Raffles Hotel to the Winds Hotel, 10 kilometers, and we're inviting Perth down and come have a picnic for a day, and on 10 flatbed trucks going down that highway, people playing their favourite versions of um, of ACDC songs just like the Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll, the, that flatbed truck around um, Swanston Street in Melbourne um, and uh, national and international bands come and do their versions of AC of ACDC.
0: I've got goosebumps, that sounds fantastic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a monologue you're going to be going into uh, quite a few times with media over yeah. the next few yeah. months yeah. congratulations, hey, that's thanks. fantastic thanks. Yeah. so you we're you're near the pointy end of your first festival. Mm-hmm. Are you nervous? Oh, Yeah.
1: yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's moments where you go, where you're making a judgment call about whether people are going to like those things that you've chosen. But on another level, uh, I, uh, there's an amazingly good team here. And, and this has been inspected deeply. And fairly conservative targets have been put in place in terms of how many tickets we're going to sell. So it's quite easy. Uh, uh, not quite easy. There's still, there's still millions of dollars worth of tickets to sell, you know, and that's not... I've never worked on that scale before. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's those financial considerations and there's reputational considerations, which are about the quality of your... Um, of the resonance of my judgment of what people want with whether they actually want it. Um, And so uh, in all of that, there's some nervousness, but also like I'm completely uh, increasingly in love with the quality of the team here and the, and the, the method by which you arrive at a decision and the robustness of that process.
0: An absolutely charming man And what a festival is curated for Perth in 2020. If you're over there in February, do take a look. It is one of the country's great festivals. The Perth Festival runs February 7th to March 1st, 2020. The program is out now and available from perthfestival.com.au. I'm thrilled to let you know that my guest over the next two episodes of the Stages podcast is acclaimed director Gail Edwards. Gail has accomplished an extraordinary career across all genres. She is the only Australian to direct at the Royal Shakespeare Company and also to have opened major commercial musicals on Broadway and the West End. We recorded the episodes over two amazing days of conversation. She is absolutely charming and one of our greatest theatre brains. That's episodes 86 and 87 of The Stages podcast. Gail Edwards. Do not miss them. Thanks for listening once again. The episodes are flying thick and fast as we near the end of the year. Many more treats heading your way. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages.